you're listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm your host, Ellen Heidi, and we're coming at you today with the second presentation that was given at the recent conference in Paducah, Kentucky. This is the uh, presentation by Reverend Adam Kuntz on the motivation for mission in Romans. So we hope you enjoy the presentation. Pastor Apple mentioned that I teach at the seminary, so I'm used to getting interrupted by people who who believe that they know more than I do about any given subject. So if you want to raise your hand or you want to talk or offer your thoughts on life or whatever, that's totally fine. I'm happy to, I'm happy to entertain those questions throughout the presentation, but I've left 10, 15 minutes at the end of the presentation um, for us to do specific questions, either about what I'm going to talk about or about uh, the things that Pastor Uppold mentioned, like uh, planting a church, that I won't talk about quite as much. Um, outside your church, you have a sign that used to be outside uh, a very large number of Missouri Synod churches. Um, not just the, the synodical cross, but it says Church of the Lutheran Hour. Church of the Lutheran Hour. And the reason that that was out there was because that was better known in many ways, especially in non-Missouri Synod heavy areas of the country, than the Missouri Synod itself. So they knew the Lutheran Hour. They knew Walter A. Meyer, but they did not necessarily know the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Uh, strange to say, I also was not raised in the Missouri Synod. He's bringing in all these Gentiles here, but he's a Jew of Jews, so <laughs> he can do that. Um, he's bringing in all these Gentiles. I was not raised in the Missouri Synod, and I came into contact with the Missouri Synod for the first time as far as what it actually taught through the Lutheran Hour. Uh, because I was not getting responses to emails to Missouri Synod pastors. And I was waiting on responses. Can I come to your church? Waiting on the response, waiting on the response. So I said, Are there, can I listen to a sermon? And this was a thousand years ago, so not everyone was live streaming, right? So uh, I listened to the Lutheran Hour. And I don't know, you know uh, how many Lutheran Hour sermons you've listened to, but it seemed amazing to me because in the Episcopal Church, I was getting sermons about fair housing practices. I was getting sermons about why we ordain women in the Episcopal Church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the Lutheran Hour was heavy-duty stuff. It was, I mean, he was talking about Jesus every single time, every single time. And you can take it for granted, but I wasn't taking it, <laughs> not at the time, not at all, Okay. So it's kind of remarkable uh, that uh, both this is part of Lutheran Hour Ministries and also that you still have that sign out there. I think that's wonderful. Um, don't take it down, please. If you take it down, please mail it to me and I will, I will hang it up on, on the property. Okay. What I want to look at this afternoon are things, especially from the Apostle Paul, but also from Jesus, about where the desire to spread the gospel comes from. Because the command to spread the gospel is kind of self-evident and generally known in our churches, the idea that the gospel should spread. But something that's also quite frequent is that it simply has not or does not, at least the way it did in the past. And I think some of that has to do with America, and I want to talk about America today, uh, because the Lutheran Hour slogan, I believe, Pastor Girls would probably know this better, When did Christ to the nations, was that a wham thing? Christ to the nations is wham. And then I think when they, when Dale Meyer became the speaker, he said, he added to the slogan, and the nations to the church. So the Lutheran hour brings Christ to the nations and the nations to the church. 
what I want you to think about today is whether you could think of bringing this nation to the church. Because it's entirely right to think about all nations. That is, in fact, the command in Matthew 28, right? Is that they would make disciples of all nations. But when America is discussed, there is often a tone of defeatism or sadness or there are too many memories. Give you an example. The church at which my wife and I met, now my wife is, my wife is, makes up for my complete lack of ethnic Lutheranism. She has, she has it in spades. She's even blonde and from Minnesota. So she's got it all, you know, um, all that that I don't have. Um, the church where we met, we were the only two people under about 200 or so years old. There were about 40 people on Sunday, and uh, we, were, we were the two that were, that were probably of uh, reasonable marriageable age. And we met there, and I was confirmed as a Lutheran there. And Christian, my oldest, was baptized there. And that church is about to close. About to close. And when I think about that, it's not, uh, it's not just an idea that something went wrong. Lots of things went wrong. What's interesting is that at that church, we had really nothing uh, that was dedicated to spreading the gospel, but a lot of people would be able to tell you stories about when the church was full. They could tell you stories about when the church was packed to the gills. And this, the sanctuary was bigger than St. Paul, so it was probably 200 to pack it out. Packed out two services. They had two pastors. They had a vicar every year. They had all this stuff. And we, you know, we had 40, and then eventually they went back into the fellowship hall where they had started in 1956 in order to save money on heating. And that story is repeated over and over and over and over again in many, 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 practically every region of the country. And so I think about that when I hear Paul saying, if you have a Bible, you want to look at Romans chapter 9. We'll start there. We'll do Romans 9, then Romans 10, then we'll look at Mark. But I hear that same sort of struggle inside when Paul is talking. And the context for Romans 9 is a little odd because Paul is not talking about his main life's work. That is what he was called to do, right? You maybe know from Galatians that Paul says, God energized Peter or sent Peter to the circumcision. He sent Paul to the uncircumcision. Paul has specific gifts that are extremely useful and helpful in the mission to the Gentiles, right? Give you an example. You might think, oh, well, Paul grew up maybe among Gentiles, maybe to some extent he was good at Greek, right? Okay, but in addition to that, Paul was also hard-headed. So if God's going to ask you to do something really hard, he needs somebody, Pastor Oppold, with a face like Flint, right? Yeah? So if he wants you to be crucified or he wants you to do something that your own people are going to despise, then he's going to make you hard-headed. So you can see Paul is hard-headed before he's converted. He's totally convinced the Christian should be killed, so he does. And then he becomes totally convinced that Christ is the Messiah, so he proclaims him everywhere, right? The personality doesn't actually change with the conversion. And I think part of that personality is a certain intensity of feeling 
that you see here in Romans chapter 9. Listen to how Paul describes how he thinks about his own people who are not, remember, actually his main life's work, though he does preach also to them, but mostly he gets trouble from them, his own people. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. He only talks this way with that sort of anguish, also in 2 Corinthians when he talks about my daily care for all the churches. And if you ask a pastor, this is what's on you, it's not just that your phone could ring, it's you're thinking about them. It's like a father, but you have, you have, I don't know, 180 of them on Sunday, kids, and you think about them all the time. He talks about the churches that way, but he also talks about his people that way. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen or my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Don't roll over that too fast. See how he thinks about his own people, that they are far away from Christ, and that because they are far away from Christ, he would rather himself go to hell if that would mean that they went to heaven. Okay? This is the vehemence with which he speaks. Right? I would rather go to hell than see my own people not go to heaven. Okay? That's what he's saying. New King James is kind of smoothing it out like it does. Always sounds good in the New King James, but sometimes doesn't get the rawness of what Paul's saying. I would rather go to hell and burn there forever if it could mean that my own people were saved. Right? Pastor Apple referenced that I, I planted a church. I grew up not uh, where that church was planted, but north of that by an hour on the Appalachian Trail. And I grew up not going to church, full stop of any kind. We had churches. We had a lot of churches. It was Appalachia, right? We had, we had plenty of churches, little churches, big churches, old churches, new churches, what we did not have and what I cannot recall my entire childhood is ever having been invited to a church with a single exception. I slept over at my friend's house and his dad was a Pentecostal pastor, as you do. And uh, we went over to the church. It's the first time I was ever in church. And they're literally running in the aisles. <laughs> and I say, this is nuts. So this was the opposite of it's too Catholic. This was the total opposite. It was a four-square gospel church. Do you know what that is? Four-square gospel. Jesus is Savior, Sanctifier, Redeemer, and something else. Healer. Something like that. Anyway, mostly you get healed. That would seem to be most of the service. Didn't make any sense, but it, was, it gave me a powerful impression of Christianity. But I didn't understand what was going on. That was the only time. I think something to think about here is that if you don't say something, you never can rely on the fact that someone else will. Because you don't actually, one, you don't actually know that, but also, two, it's not really your job to make sure that I say something to my neighbor. You have a commission from Jesus to say something to your neighbor, and that's really all you need to worry about. You don't need to worry about how much I am or am not carrying out my part of that to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Can you hear this, though, in Paul? Paul knows this anguish. Because there is something sort of sad in having a, a little town of 
4,000 that has like 20 churches. But there are still plenty of people that don't go there. Don't go to any one of those churches. And I think there's a lot of this just gets taken for granted. I hear it when we talk about church planting a lot of time. People can imagine easily sort of what Pastor Grill's engaged in because it's kind of like it makes, I don't know, it makes sense. Like, oh, they, uh, they don't speak English, so, you know, we should, we should speak whatever language they speak and bring them into a church makes sense. But as you know from living here, you can go across all kinds of parts of America and you can find not a single Lutheran church. The thing to think about that is, if you actually believe that you know the truth, why don't you want to tell anybody about it? If you actually have the truth, wouldn't you want to tell somebody? I mean, you know that uh, from this past, let's say, uh, I don't know, it's been, what, like 27 months since COVID started? Is that right? 27 or 35, 42, long time. 16. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. No, you're, t- you're right. Uh, you're on target. Uh, people are very ready to tell me what they think about COVID. Uh, often, uh, you will meet somebody for the first time and they tell you what they think about COVID. <laughs> right? Like, for better or worse, right? I mean, sometimes I'm nodding along and sometimes I'm nodding along and I don't agree. You know, it just depends. Can you imagine... Can you imagine a world in which you would be able to talk that way about Jesus Christ? Just in a sort of a natural way, the way people talk about COVID. I mean, COVID is so boring. I'm so tired of talking about it, you know. Uh, I came down here yesterday from Indiana and uh, the rules change like every four miles or whatever, you know, along. And I'm in Illinois and I got to put like 17 masks on or whatever. I'm sorry. You know, and then Kentucky, I'm supposed to put a mask on, but then you guys are good, like, you just don't, and it's... <laughs> so that's good. They're a little more conformist in Illinois at the truck stop, but it's fine. But that's boring. I know a Savior who is very great, very wonderful, inexhaustible grace he offers me. I could talk about him all day, right? So think about how you get there, because I think Paul is there. And he's there not just in how he feels, but also in what he says. So keep listening to this. My countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. I mean, Paul is in a different situation than we are. Paul is dealing with a people who should have known still more than we did. You can look up statistics, and uh, Pastor Girls mentioned the, the two big great awakenings. You can look up statistics and wonder how many Americans were ever in church or were members of a church formally. And I believe that that kind of peaked, from what we can tell, that that peaked in the 1950s. I think that's right. But 1950s, even compared to the 1750s, right? So you're dealing with a situation where within our living memories, and certainly within the living memories of our churches, not only were more and more and more churches being started, right? 
So there were times when the seminaries did not graduate, you know, 50 guys and 35 guys. That's kind of St. Louis and Fort Wayne averages today. They graduated way more than that, three, four times that in some cases. And bunches of guys would be given some money and a car and said, go over here and start a church. And the stories are, to me at this point, unbelievable. Because the stories are remarkable. I put up a sign that said, St. James Lutheran Church will go here. And people just showed up. <laughs> they just showed up because they, they had to go to church. And when you think about that, or you think about the stories of the folks at the church where I sort of came into contact with the Lutheran Church, those stories that they knew, it was packed out. Pastor Seiler was such a great pastor. His sermons were the best sermons anybody ever heard, all this sort of thing. There's a sort of a pain in knowing what could have been or in knowing what was. And that pain is Paul's also. It would almost be better not to have known those things, to within our living memory have had, I don't know, 10 Missouri Synod churches. And now we've got 6,000 or something. Like, that would feel amazing, right? But within living memory, we can recall, not in the case of every single congregation, but in the case of many people, and even in congregations where the pews are still packed, your own families, where there are people who could or should or did know Christ and now who do not. Paul is recalling all the history of the Old Testament back there. And what he's wondering is, if the Word of God came to these people, and it was a real Word, and they were really supposed to believe it, and it was true and mighty and led them out of Egypt, then what went wrong? That's really the question. The question about the Gentiles, Paul doesn't find nearly as astounding or confusing as most other people do. Well, of course, and he's going to quote all kinds of stuff in Romans 15 about this, of course the Gentiles were going to come in. The gospel was always intended for all the world. And it was a gospel that you had to believe. It wasn't one that you were born into. But for those who were born into it, or for those who were born into a country in which the money says, in God we trust, what happened? He's asking. What happened to us? What went wrong? So he keeps asking this. He says, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. He says, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And that sounds a little tricky, but here's what it means in a nutshell. That Israel, God's people, was always determined by faith, not by blood. Always, actually. Always. And that in times of hardship and difficulty, when the word of God is coming in a hard way, like in the times of Jeremiah, in those times, you find out who people really are. And you find out what they actually believe. Because all the benefits of belonging that don't involve believing, when those fall away, then you understand who actually believes things. Think about the parable of the sower, the parable that Jesus tells his disciples when they go out sort of on their, their first journey and then they come back and they say, you know, it didn't really work the way we thought it was going to work. What are the reasons that people fall away? Do you remember them from the parable of the sower? Some of the seed fails. In fact, most of it fails. These guys are better gardeners than I am, so they know more about that. But, yes, sir? Some of it didn't take root at all. Yeah. Some of it took poor root. 
poor root. You got it, yeah. You got it, yeah, that's right. Did we have another hand back here? Yes, sir. Rocky soil. You guys, you guys are all good gardeners. You're worried about the soil. Shallow. Birds. <laughs> you got something against birds? Okay. <laughs> okay. 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 Do you remember what... How did he talk about shallow? What did Jesus say? That, how were they shallow? It grew up. Then it got scorched. It had no root in itself. Right? The place that the Word of God was intended to grow was a shallow place. There wasn't a lot of thought going on there. A lot of reflection. What about the thorns? They can be, it, it did work for a while. And then it got choked by what exactly? Cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches. Meaning, you set your heart on one thing, something else proved to be of value. You went after that other thing. You were with us for a while and then you weren't. Not all who are Israel are of Israel. There is something salutary about this. There's a time in which the Missouri Synod is very small, and the method that I got for planting a church, I, I, I mean, this is, you can, I mean, I'm kind of ashamed to say this. I got it from a historical magazine. Is that weird? That's pretty geeky. Concordia Historical Institute Quarterly. Maybe you know what that is. Maybe you don't. Your subscription ran out. Yeah. Yeah. It's sitting, you know. <laughs> Uh, because what I noticed was there was all these pastors, and they, would, they founded like six churches. And I thought, what are they doing? How do they do this? Well, they just sort of wander around for a week or so once a month and see what's going on and talk to people. Uh, it wasn't funded. It wasn't uh, clear. They didn't really get any clearance beforehand. That is really different. I'm working on a, a church prospectus for a church plant in northeast Indiana. Do you know anything about northeast Indiana? They have, there's like a Lutheran church. It's not that you just can't throw a dead cat. You can't like turn around without bumping into a Lutheran church in northeast Indiana. But there is a town of about 10,000 that doesn't have, that's never had an LCMS church. And I am writing the prospectus for my friend. Um, we're going to be working through his congregation, hopefully get the seminarians involved. But I had to do so much diplomacy in order to get authorization to write a plan. Because there's a Missouri Synod Lutheran every three steps. I mean, it's, the kids think it's really strange that uh, we're not the only Lutherans we know anymore. Uh, because in Pennsylvania, we were the only Lutherans the kids knew. Um, so there was a, a really bad baseball player on Christian's team last year. And he goes, he's a Lutheran. You know, he was just, just ashamed, you know. <laughs> But in Pennsylvania, I didn't have to ask anybody's permission. I just sort of started going and doing it. And it wasn't really that complicated. But I think it is driven, if it's driven out of a place of desire, then your ability to plan or fundraise or stuff like that, that will come. You will get better at things like that, either individually, if you're uh, a minister, or as a congregation. You will get better at 
figuring things out. The established congregation got better at figuring out how to think about what a church plant was for because we had never, ever done it in 110 years. Yeah, yes, sir, got it. My dad's ministry. <laughs> That's pretty legitimate. You got to like, yeah, you got to wait a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that yeah, that is exile. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is right. That is right. And I don't. I don't want to do too much because if you guys are gonna do something, that would be amazing. But you're probably not gonna run into this problem. But I explicitly told them at these various diplomatic meetings I had with pastors and the district and everything like that in Indiana, I do not want a single person from a Missouri Synod church unless his pastor wants to release him. And I already have people contacting me being like, I don't really like my pastor. <laughs> you know, it's really bad, you know, <laughs> but they're hopping around. So, yeah, they're hopping around. Um, let's go to Romans 10 because uh, what you're looking at in Romans 9 through 11 is not only a really beautiful statement of God's election of his people, but specifically in the context of missions, you're dealing with, we talked about sort of the pain that I think drives Paul's desire for his people's salvation and the, the radicality of the statement that we started with. But in 10, he doesn't just leave us with, you know, okay, I'm really sad, I'm really worked up, it's really horrible that my people should have understood and yet they did not, Right? But he also has, in addition to that pain, he also has a plan for missions. So he starts out this way in 10, sounding a lot like the beginning of 9. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This is sort of like, you know, there are certain parts of the country that are more, let's say, religious than others. They may be more zealous. It may not be that they know lots and lots of wholesome doctrine, but they are more, a little more religious than other parts of the country, right? I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Before you go over that too fast, understand that Paul is saying that if you read the Bible, you're going to end up with Jesus. If you're reading it the right way, you will end up knowing Christ and him crucified. This is, unfortunately, something of a distinctive of the Lutheran church, is its focus on Jesus. I say unfortunately because I wish that this were not the case, but that very often you can go to churches and get lots of information about lots of things. Does anyone know who John Hagee is? John Hagee, what does he do? He's an evangelist, yeah. You saw him? Okay. Yeah, he's not Lutheran. John Hagee is the reason that everyone thinks First Thessalonians is just about the rapture. That's, that's John. I mean, in addition to others. But. Yeah. So if you think about it, a lot of the Christianity that is on common offer in America is either in some cases shallow or sometimes very misguided 
And one of the things that it guides people into wrongly is an obsession about things about which the Bible speaks relatively little, and therefore a lack of knowledge about which the Bible speaks a great deal. Okay, so we had a, we had a, a couple, uh, and they were coming to us from the Independent Fundamental Baptist. Do you guys have those? You do? You do? Yeah. They were coming to us from the IFB, and uh, they were, used to drive halfway across the country to go to these prophecy conferences. And they'd be there, like, all weekend, and they're talking about Israel, and they're talking about, I mean, like, the nation of Israel. And they're talking about tanks and helicopters and Revelation and all this kind of thing. They had never heard just sort of a basic explanation of Jesus has two natures, one human, one divine. Here's what that means for your salvation. I mean, they knew Jesus was God and man, but like no one had ever really preached. They were preaching about the helicopters in Revelation, you know. So you're dealing with lots of knowledge of religion, even where people are religious, not to speak of, say, the Northeast, where people just, levels of religious practice are very, very low, or parts of the West, right? So not to speak of places where people are not openly religious, but also even where they are religious, you've got to kind of wonder, what do they know? And Paul says, if you were reading the Bible the right way, you would always come to Christ. Christ is the end or the goal or the purpose of the law, that is God's revelation. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. So he goes on, he says, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. So this is 10 verse 5. The man who does these things shall live by them, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, I have, in New King James. You might say proclaim. I don't think he's just talking about a word that only preachers spread, professional ministers, clergymen, okay? The word which we proclaim. So think about it this way. Paul's answer to his pain is to start to carry out God's plan for men's salvation. He doesn't have another answer. He doesn't stop in chapter 10 and say, well, I know that Jesus said I am the way, the truth, and the life, but let's build kind of like a, a, like a back door into heaven and we'll bring my people in that way. Okay? And then they won't have to come through Jesus because they're not, they're not doing it. It's too, it's too awkward, it's too hard, it's too whatever, right? He also doesn't say, well, this is probably some, someone else's problem because I'm not even professionally called to go to the circumcision. I'm not over the Judean churches, the homeland of the Jewish people. I don't have to worry about that. It's not really my problem. Pastor Grill stressed stress the local nature of the church, and the local nature means simply this, that if they're my children, I take care of them. If the problem is in front of my eyes, I do what I can. Okay? So if the problem is in front of your eyes here, then you work on it first before asking someone else to do so. It's kind of simple when you think about it this way. A focus on bringing this nation to the church is simply the idea that if Americans don't care enough about America to do it, why would we expect anyone else to? It would be great if they did, 
But if we don't, why would I expect anyone else to? If I won't do it, if I won't say it to my relative or my coworker or my whoever, then why would I ask someone else to come do it for me? Right? Because you're dealing with a different situation than you were, say, in the 19th century in parts of the world that had never been reached by Christians before. Right? We couldn't expect somebody necessarily in East Asia or Central Africa to say, well, I'll spread the gospel to my neighbor first because he didn't yet know the gospel. Right? But once you do, then you also know how much the other person needs it. I understand when people say that America is a post-Christian nation in the sense that Christianity does not dominate people's thinking or schooling or lots of other things the way it once did. But I cannot accept that it's post-Christian if there are Christian congregations still actively worshiping and teaching in the present day. I'm not, I'm not post-anything. I'm right here. And so Paul doesn't say, well, hey, let's figure out some other way. He says, the word is right here, and it's the word that we proclaim to you. Listen to this. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And you hear that word shame because it's a word that is often associated with the church, but not in the sense people don't think, well, I'm going to come to church so that I will not be put to shame. They think the church is a place of great shame, inculcation of shame, <clears throat> maybe mutually shaming one another. I don't know. That misconception is entirely based on the idea that the world, <coughs> excuse me, is a place of forgiveness. That somehow what the church offers is something you could get anywhere. Does anybody have a question while I'm trying to get my voice back? <laughs> um, I think the reason that people are so interested in end time stuff is because, partly it's because you're conditioned by the media to believe the world is rapidly changing and probably, if you're a Christian in any sense, rapidly falling apart. So your daily, your daily intake of things you know is generally pretty bleak. Christians then want Bible answers to what's going on in the world, what's wrong with the world. And instead of a message of repentance, they're given a message of interpreting what they're reading in the news. You know, whereas when Jesus talks about signs, his only concern is that the disciples would be so shaken by what's going on that, that they would themselves fall away. <clears throat> that these things would, if possible, deceive even the elect. Right? So it's kind of sad that a lot of Christianity people are aware of is really itself at best, a distraction from a call to repentance and faith, lest we likewise perish. Yeah. Yeah. Other questions or comments right now? My voice is back, but if you have something to say. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I have a friend, and 
Right. <coughs> the, um, the kind of stuff that we're talking about at this point is stuff that Paul talks about really whenever he brings up the Old Testament. And that is that his interpretation of it in 9 and 10 is much more high level, like I just want the word of God to get to them. And then sometimes he will drill down and say specifically, here's what's wrong, here's what went wrong in this specific case. Like they all fell in the wilderness. And I think that we can do that and we need to do that, especially with individual people. When someone comes to you and and essentially says, Christianity is too low status for me. You know, it's just, you're not, you're not high enough on the social totem pole. And I think of myself differently because of the, the letters after my name. And so, you know, that's, so when you're dealing with individual people, these specific causes are absolutely essential to apologetics because the, di- the difficulties that I find people have or that I myself had are not exactly, they're not really rational difficulties. So it's not like... <clears throat> You know, I'm confused what the Bible means by this. Please explain it to me. If the person's asking a question like that, he probably already believes in some sense. But sort of the initial entry into the life and the desire to learn more about Christ is going to come out of a somewhere deeper than that. That's why I started with emotion, because to be honest with you, I think a lot of people are not really that forthright about why they feel the way they feel about things, and their objections to Christianity probably have a lot to do with how they feel, and much less about whether or not they've ever thought about it. Yeah. Uh, hand over here. Anybody? No? You good? Yeah, and that, that is a big... That, and it, and it's, it's something that a lot of times people are not all that honest about, um, that they look down on other people or that they think they're, they're stupid because they say they believe the Bible or something. But that's, that's all part of the mix. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, go ahead. And I think this has always been the case. I mean, when Jesus talks about service in the church, right? He who would be greatest among you must become the least. I mean, the seminarians don't want to hear that either. Because, you know, I mean, some part of them is going into the ministry for reasons that are connected to status. Even in 2021 America, you know, some, some part of it is, I want to be able to talk and the whole room has to listen to me. Or whatever, you know, like, and I, I mean, I'm joking, but I'm not joking. You know, that's part of it. That's part of the hazard of the job. Yeah, right, I know. <clears throat> Physician, heal thyself is what I'm, you know, that's what I'm saying. So... Yeah, that's part of it. That's part of it. And you have, if you're able to be honest about that, then I think you're able to get a lot farther with people. It's also the case that when you're, when you're dealing right away with objections, um, you're probably somewhere a lot closer to Paul in Acts getting run out of synagogues than you are Nicodemus just kind of openly like listening and talking to Jesus just in a sort of a private way because he doesn't want to show people that he's actually interested in Christ. But... You do have people who are very open-hearted and, and will tell you what they actually think, but a lot of folks are just going to be hostile because you're lower status by virtue of being a, a Bible Christian. Yeah. yeah. Anything else? Let's do one more thing in Romans, and then I want to take you. Can you keep me honest on time? Okay. Uh, and then we'll, we'll go to Mark for a little bit. So he says, the word is very near you, Right? For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, 
For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a theme verse throughout Acts. And uh, it's going to surprise everybody as, you know, throughout Acts, people they did not expect begin to come into the church. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher or someone proclaiming, you might say in Greek? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Okay. That joy is set all around, not the messenger or the messenger's impressiveness. Paul actually claims to be a horribly unimpressive person um, in Second Corinthians. I'm not entirely sure that I believe him when he says that. I think he just didn't have the kind of education that public speakers usually did in his time and place, but I think he was probably okay, you know, um, as a preacher. Um, but he claims not to be good, so, you know, whatever, that's fine. Um, but the issue here is not that the person conveying the message is so incredibly important or impressive, or that the circumstances are auspicious. Paul does not focus nearly so much on the circumstances as we often do. And circumstances are helpful to know. So if you're going to plant a church, you probably want to try the place that has 15,000 people before you try the place that has 500. Because the place that has 500 might just be controlled by a Masonic Lodge anyway, so you're going to have problems. I'm joking, but I'm not, you know. (laughs) Um, But uh, you might want to try the bigger place first, just your chances are going to be a little bit better, right? But circumstances don't determine anything. What determines whether or not people will call on him and whom, of, of whom they have now heard is that they have heard the word of Christ. They have heard this basic message of the gospel, that they are sinners and that there is a Savior who has done all for them. It's simple, and it's so simple we can convey it to our children and our grandchildren. That's how simple it is. You don't, it's, it doesn't require you to have a long, complex presentation of anything. And it is the thing that will either, they'll hear it in church, it'll, it'll spark their interest, or it will drive them to want to have a church of their own to call home, right? Because the natural desire of the Christian, once he believes these things, is to go to church. And um, being at least, I don't know if adult is the right word for what I was when I was 18 years old, but being a convert who can remember not believing in Christ I remember all of these processes taking place. So I believed in Christ, and then I thought, oh, I should go to church because that's what Christians do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of helpful to have remembered all that because uh, you can kind of... I, I remember sort of being friendly to Christianity, for instance, but by no means convinced of it and having no one to explain anything to me. So if you had somebody explaining things to you and kind of walking you along, it would, I can tell you from personal experience, be a lot more helpful and things would go better. Um, Whereas, you know, I went to church and then I didn't know what was going on and it was very, it was highly confusing. It wasn't bad, it was just really confusing. So if you have somebody explaining things, then, you know, it'll, a lot smoother. Yes, ma'am, go ahead. Yeah, my parents are actually became members of the church in Pennsylvania. Yeah. 
So they drove like an hour to get to the mission church. Yeah. So, yeah, that all worked out, right? Thanks to God. Yeah, right. But, um, yeah, growing up, we weren't hostile. We just didn't go to church. Yeah. I didn't even have travel sports as an excuse. I just, (laughs) I wasn't busy. I just wasn't in church. (laughs) So, any other Romans questions before I go? Do a little bit of Mark chapter 6. Okay, let's do a little bit of Mark. So how much time do I have? What does that mean? 15 minutes? Sounds good. Okay. So in Mark chapter 6, um, you're in the middle of Jesus' ministry, and um, you're dealing with a situation very familiar to you, but what I want to look at is how Jesus reacts to it, because um, if there is pain that Paul feels in knowing that his own people do not believe, and there is a plan of simply communicating the gospel so that people do come to believe, I want to I end on something that I think is similarly, let's say, deep about people that will help you understand what your motivation might be for communicating the gospel to your neighbor, okay? Um, Because I I don't think people are solely driven by sort of rational ideas and objectives or my telling you that you should communicate the gospel or you should plant a church whatever south of here or wherever the best place might be, right? I think that's going to be driven out of a deeper place. So take a look at Mark chapter 6 at verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. So they're coming off a very successful mission journey. Okay, it, it, it sounds more positive in Mark than, than the way that Matthew relates it. Um, but they did generally do what they were supposed to do. And, and he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. It's an interesting, usually you don't get a lot of mention of schedules in the Gospels or in Acts, but when you do, you get a sense that they are sort of, that their schedule is overwhelmed, okay? And sometimes it's with work that they really don't need to do, right? So the, the, the job of the seven, for instance, is so that the ministers can devote themselves to preaching and praying and so that the other needs of the church can be taken care of by others, right? It does need to happen. Those alms do need to be distributed, but the ministers don't need to do that necessarily. They don't need to be in on everything, right? Here, it's a sense that both the preaching and teaching and in Mark especially, the casting out of demons is taking up so much time, they just don't have any time whatsoever of any kind, so they have to get away. They have to get away. And as they get away, it's not quite going to work. So verse 32, So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitudes saw them departing. You know, it said in the bulletin that pastor was going to be away from whatever, Tuesday through Thursday, but you called him with a desperate problem on Wednesday anyway. You know, this is, this is just the fate of, this is the way it goes, Right? The multitudes saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. So there they are. Okay. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, okay. So he's trying to get away from these people. <laughs> okay. 
he's, he, he's kind of, the reason I picked this to end here is because the understandable reaction, like I, I could, I think you can understand that if you imagine a family member going to hell, that's obviously awful and you would like to do anything you could about that. Like, obviously. Okay. Here, it's people who were just bothering him. Let's say to put it politely. They were, they were, they were swamping his time and everything. And now they're chasing after him. They won't just, just leave him alone, you know? Um, this is what it's like when you have real little kids and you're just trying to go to the bathroom. You know, you just, just please don't knock on the door. I'm just trying to go to the bathroom and then, and then I'll come out, you know, it's okay. So they won't leave him alone. We could understand if he said to these people, hey, uh, just wait, hang on. Why don't you wait a week or two, okay? And then he'll be right back, right? But instead, Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and then this is a really lame translation, so I'm going to fix it in a second, was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. Okay. What's lame about that is was moved with compassion doesn't cover what Mark is actually saying. He's talking about what happens when your stomach kind of flips over. Okay. So if you can imagine not just what you would think or what you would do, but how you would feel if you saw your child or your grandchild in danger of getting hit by a bus, what would you do? How would that feel right away? Okay. You're talking about the deepest sorts of feelings of concern or desire to save that someone could have. That's where he is. So he sees the multitude and he sees that they're wandering around. Sheep without a shepherd means you're probably eventually going to get killed by this, that, or the other danger. So he sees them He knows who they are. When we talk about harvests in connection with mission, and it's on the bulletin for today, that's because Jesus says the fields are white for the harvest. But sometimes that can be, I think, a little too abstract. It might be better if you thought about specific people. So specific people that live in a town where you're going to start a church, or specific people that you've run into over the past year or two years that you've figured out don't have a church. Specific people by name, praying for them by name, calling them up, getting in touch with them, texting them by name. It gets a lot less abstract that way and generally drives a lot more because you have to look at them in danger. You have to look at them being lost. You have to look at them living in fear or being desperately confused. You have to see them. So they're not just sheaves of grain. That's a little, I mean, most of us are not wheat farmers in the room, I think. But we can think of people and their faces and how their voices sound and what it would be like if they were here in church with us. So he sees them and his stomach kind of does a somersault as he sees them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So What does he do? What is his response to the fact that they're lost? He began to teach them many things. And then he's going to go on to feed them. In verse 39, you hear that he's beginning to feed them just the way a shepherd would. Listen to what Mark says. Then he he commanded them, that's the disciples, to make them, that's the crowds, all sit down in groups on the green grass. So now Psalm 23 is coming 
to pass right here as Jesus begins to take people who are lost, who are wandering, who have nothing, who are not being fed, right? Understand that lost people also have souls. They're just not fed the right way. In the same way that you might have a body and feed it with good food or bad food. They have souls. They have emotions. They have beliefs. They have desires. And instead of a true God, they have idols. And that's governing their whole life just like Christ does yours. So what changes here is not that they are hungry for the first time. They've been hungry before. It's not that they're, you know, wanting to learn something for the first time. They've learned things before. It's that they're learning from the true shepherd and being fed by the true shepherd. That's the difference in the church. It's not that you don't know anything or believe anything outside of the church. It's that when someone finally comes alongside you and speaks that word to you, whether it's the pastor or anybody else, now you are being fed rightly. Now you are learning truly. Now you are in the way and the truth and the life for the first time. And if you can drive your congregation or your personal understanding of what it is to believe or to spread the gospel out of the fact of individual people you can know and think of and pray for, it will generally be a lot more fruitful than just remembering in general, yeah, we should spread the gospel. In the same sense that I think part of the early success of the Church of the Lutheran Hour, of the Lutheran Hour, was how intimate radio is. That it felt like you knew this man who was talking to you. Okay? And that might seem a little odd to us, but um, we do a podcast and people feel like they know us. And really all they know is our voices, generally. Um, so that, that, meet, that medium of a voice, a human voice telling you the truth, is incredibly powerful. And it's even more powerful than on the radio when it's one-to-one. Somebody sitting right across from me is willing to tell me what the truth is. And if you can just think of one person for today, one person that you could pray for or to whom you could tell the truth within, let's say, the next six months, that would be so powerful. And for that person, so wonderful. He doesn't even know right now. So wonderful. Do you guys have questions or comments or thoughts? I have the after-dinner slot, so you might just be weighed down by sandwiches, which were really, really good. But Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Yeah, that's a great question. So... Um, I would say the absolute best thing you can do for yourself to start out is to not be surprised by any kind or level of opposition. Thinking that anyone thinks well of us for any reason at this point, just don't do that. And then, like, if your expectations are low enough, then you don't have to be disappointed, you know? Uh, general, you know, that's a good life principle, right? But... but um, and then once they, okay, they say, you know, you think we're all going to hell. Well, they feel like that's random because they don't know anything about it. It's kind of the way that you might feel about a sport you don't understand. Why are they doing that? You know, or like, why do they, why is it, why do they stop every five seconds, like in the NFL or whatever? You know, like, if you don't know the rules or you don't know why it is, it doesn't make any sense and you can just complain about it. So 
I'm not going to expect anyone to know anything, no matter where I am. It could be rural Louisiana. I don't expect them to know anything about Christianity. Because all I know, especially if they're under a certain age, is that they've been on the internet their whole lives. So who knows what they think? To be, honestly, who knows what they think? And then once I'm kind of prepared for any level or kind of opposition, then I can say, okay, the primary thing I can do is give you better quality information than what you've been getting. And something, an advantage that Christian congregations have over most other forms of anything that sort of claims people's allegiance is that we actually have groups of like fairly decent human beings that people can live their lives with. Almost nothing else works like that. Like, I can't join political movements or, you know, lots of things and get connected to a group of, like, kind human beings that will make my life better. So we have both, I think, one responsibility that every Christian has is to learn more and more and more Bible teaching so that you are able to explain Christianity better either to your children or to your coworkers or whoever. And then also just not to worry about what kind of opposition you're going to get because you should just expect it. I mean, it's opposition to Christianity is normal and privileged and belief in Christianity is abnormal and not privileged. And that's just where we are, yeah. Can't fix it now. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, so that's an example where Lutheranism is... um, it's not only unusual in many parts of the United States, but it also provides a sort of depth of life that a lot of forms of Christianity don't anymore, right? So when that person is thinking about, you know, you know I don't really know anything about the Holy Spirit or I don't know this, or I, don't, I think that has a lot to do not so much with, let's say, evangelism, but, but how, how and why your church presents itself to the community. Like, what are you, what do people in the community know about you? And I think in this case, like, the way that we worship is so distinctive in much of American Christianity. And it's actually really good because it's providing a depth of experience. The way I explain it to people, like, when I'm talking about... Uh, why is the way we worship good, is, is that it's one of the very few places in modern life where I don't have to feel present to some set of electronic stuff or nobody's expecting anything out of me. It's beautiful, and I'm there, and it's, it's repeated, and it's familiar but slightly unfamiliar. It's a kind of life experience almost nobody has anymore. And you know that they're not getting it in the churches that they at least ostensibly belong to. Also, and I've, I've been to your place uh, once, you know, you have that giant church right, right down the street, I don't remember what it's called. Um, that could be like any, any direction from your church, right? Um, is that churches like that, those enormous churches, usually have incredibly high churn. And I think they really have, honestly, a different understanding of what membership is from a Lutheran church. So if you're coming into the Lutheran church, I don't really need you to go anywhere else. And I don't expect you to go anywhere else. A lot of those churches are working off a certain sort of like cost of doing business understanding of membership. Like some people are going to come and join and then they're going to roll right back out the back door. 
So I think that even if you're dealing with folks that are, you know, other forms of Christianity, you're offering a depth that they don't, that they don't provide. Yeah. Um, and also the size of our church is like the pastor knows your name. That's pretty cool, you know. <laughs> the pastor doesn't know their name. Sure, I think, I mean, if you have prospects, I think your prospect list starts with your inactive member list. But then you have people you know or people who have visited or people that you talk to on a regular basis but you've never seen them in church. All of that, I mean, I'm kind of a both, I have a both-and philosophy here. Like, all of that is up for grabs. And those different groups are going to be, are gonna, you're going to need to kind of, like, talk to them in different ways. Sure, but yeah, yeah, no question. Anything else? I don't want to run over time. Maybe we'll keep going. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you hear, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Zell and Heidi. God love you, and God bless you.